This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That is our challenge for our, you know, our era of empowering our patients where the patients are the center of our care, which is what it should be. But then how do we deal with all the other noise that is out there distracting from taking the best care of our patients? Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hey everyone, welcome back to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. I am so thrilled for today's episode as we have my good friend, mentor, and world-renowned cardiologist, Dr. Martha Gulati on the episode. Except we don't talk about cardiology specifically. This episode is all about understanding expert scientific consensus, guidelines, and evidence-based medicine, which you can apply to everything. This episode's a powerful one, and I can promise you that after this episode, you will never look at health and wellness claims on social media the same ever again. Dr. Martha Gulati is the president-elect of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. She's the author of the bestseller, Saving Women's Hearts. She served as the chair of the National Chest Pain Guidelines that were released in late 2021. She recently joined the Cedars-Sinai Heart Institute as professor of cardiology and is the director of prevention, the associate director of the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Center, and holds the Anita Dan Friedman Endowed Chair in Women's Cardiovascular Medicine and Research. Her exceptional commitment to the study of women and cardiac diseases has won her numerous awards and distinctions, too many to count. She's the principal investigator of the St. James Women Take Heart Project. She's also a co-investigator of the Women Ischemic Syndrome Evaluation and previously served as the co-investigator of the Women's Health Initiative. She has published articles in peer-reviewed publications, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Circulation, and the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. Galati is Canadian and completed her medical school at the University of Toronto. She went on to complete her internship, residency, and cardiology fellowship at the University of Chicago. This week's episode is an important one. This week, we discuss guidelines and evidence-based medicine. If you've been listening to my podcast, you've heard me mention the phrase guidelines in every single episode. And Dr. Gulati, as the chair of the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association guidelines, will walk you through the entire guideline process from start to finish. Well, why is this important? Well, a lot of our podcast is about debunking misinformation in the health and wellness space. Oftentimes, a lot of misinformation from wellness influencers, which includes even unfortunately sometimes some non-evidence-based physicians or dietitians, often at the core of the misinformation they spread is a lack of evidence-based information. Well, what does this mean? Sometimes a pseudoscience health influencer will share a single study to support some ridiculous health claims. The truth is we can find a study to support anything. The study may be one that's of low level of evidence and it may not even apply to you. Sometimes it's a study in a mouse. And without fail, the pseudoscience they recommend is not recommended by our major medical society guidelines. So in this episode, we discuss in great detail how guidelines are created, the rigorous, systematic, unbiased process that goes into recommendations for our patients, 
Guidelines apply to everything. We have guidelines for testing, for management, for screening, for nutrition, for lifestyle, and for medical therapy. Guidelines and expert consensus take years to form and are constantly updated with new science. And the incredibly robust scientific process that goes into guidelines help physicians and healthcare providers to provide patients with the most up-to-date, evidence-informed care. As I've said before, scientific evidence is not meant to be taken personally. It's not meant to hurt your feelings, and it's not meant to judge your character. Scientific evidence serves to either support or counter a hypothesis and be critically evaluated in a systematic way using consistent logic. One of my favorite quotes you'll hear me mention in the episode is from the Institute of Medicine, and they say, patients should receive care based on the best available scientific knowledge. Care should not vary illogically from clinician to clinician or from place to place. I promise you, if you listen to this entire episode, your entire perception of science and wellness on social media will change. It doesn't matter whether you've never read a research article in your life or whether you published 100 papers. At the end of this episode, you just won't be able to look at health and wellness influencers or headlines of flashy health pseudoscience the same. My goal for this episode is to arm you, yes, you, the listener, with the ability to decipher if whether the health claim on your Instagram feed is fact versus fiction. It's to arm you with the ability to assess whether your own healthcare provider is evidence-based or figure out if they're providing you with misinformation. This episode will help you advocate for yourself to your healthcare providers to make sure you're getting the standard of best scientific evidence-based medical care. Once you finish this episode, pseudoscience just doesn't stand a chance. In this episode, we cover, first of all, what is evidence-based medicine and what are guidelines? What is guideline-directed medical therapy? What is guideline-directed medical management? Who are the guideline committee writing members and how are they selected? And really important, we discuss what about relationships with industry and pharmaceutical companies? What safeguards are in place to make sure that pharmaceutical companies do not influence our guidelines? And hint, there are many policies in place. I think this podcast episode will restore your faith in a lot of medical care. And we discuss how alternative health influencers, including some MDs who are anti-guideline, can make their followers really resistant to trusting the systematic process of guideline development. We explain why someone making broad recommendations that go against guidelines and expert consensus is dangerous and harmful and what red flags to look for. This episode is jam-packed with so much information. I am thrilled to share it with you. So let's get to it. Dr. Gulati, it is such an incredible honor to have you on the podcast this week. I've been name dropping you in my podcast, obviously, uh, almost every episode. As I mentioned in your intro, you're not only a wonderful, well-known, brilliant, world-renowned cardiologist, but you're also my very, very, very good friend. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So Dr. Gulati, if you don't mind actually just starting, um, I always ask everyone to just, even though I've read their bio and explain background, I always ask everyone to just give our audience a little bit more of a personal introduction to you and your interests and everything that you do. Yeah, well, so I'm a cardiologist. I'm the president-elect. In a few weeks, I'll be the president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. I am in the middle of starting a new position at Cedar sinai Medical Center in their Heart Institute, both working in their Women's Heart Center, which is the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Center, and then additionally, I will be running their Center for Prevention. I guess the other part of me is that, you know, I'm a, a Canadian and um, I am uh, somebody who is interested in cardiovascular health as, as a cardiologist, but also because I'm a runner and um, I don't know, something else personal, you know this well, I, I have two dogs. The cutest. And they are my running partners and uh, they'll probably bark in this episode because that's what they do. That's all right. We welcome dog friendly. Um, all barks are welcome on the pod. <laughs> okay, so let's dig into it. So thank you so much. So to start with, Dr. Gulati, you were the chair of the recent um, ACCAHA guideline committee for chest pain. And everyone who listens to my podcast knows that I talk about guidelines all the time. It is one of the most frequent things I mention. And that's why I was so excited to do an episode on guidelines specifically to discuss exactly what they are and what goes into them. And 
No one knows this better than someone who was just chair of a guideline committee. So starting with guidelines in general, as you have obviously been involved in cardiovascular disease, you've been a huge world-renowned cardiologist for just so long. I've looked up to you for so long and you really do have just great experience, both as a clinician and both as a researcher. You're incredibly well-published. You've published papers on various different topics in cardiology. And so starting with the selection of writing committee members, so starting with when you guys decide, okay, this is going to be the guideline chair, this is going to be the guideline committee. When you did it for ACCAHA, which is for everyone listening, you know, is our major, um, one of one of our major cardiovascular organizations, how does that go, the selection of the writing committee? Yeah, and I would say that it was a hidden secret to me until I actually was part of the guidelines, particularly as the chair, because you're, you obviously are, have a vested interest in it and you have, like to know who's going to be writing them with you. And so the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association jointly do the guidelines now. And that, that's a relatively recent change, I'd say, many years ago. It used to actually be the NIH that led them, and then they decided they were in the business of guidelines. And so the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association took it over. And so only for our for the cardiology community, can I speak? You know, I don't right. know for other aspects of medicine exactly how they decide their right. guidance, but because cardiology specifically is so evidence-based, and I mean, we we put pretty much what we do as much as we can to rigorous testing, meaning doing trials, making sure that we're studying things, and then endorsing them based on what we know based on the research that's available. I think cardiology specifically probably has the most evidence-based guidelines. So when the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association decide, you know, a guideline needs to be written, the first thing they do is choose the chair. And they choose the chair based on both expertise, but also if you have an invested interest. What I mean by that is if you have a lot of conflict of interest, you probably will not be the chair. You might be asked to be part of the guidelines, but they don't want bias introduced by the chair. So certainly for me, uh, I would say, you know, I had no conflict of interest. And that, that certainly is a check thing that they say, okay, you, you, you have to verify you have no conflict of interest. And they do their own homework before they even make that phone call or send you that email saying, we'd like you to chair these guidelines. So sometimes you might say, well, why wasn't the biggest name person the chair of these guidelines, probably because they have a conflict of interest. And it's not to say that having a conflict of interest, working with industry is a bad thing. Agree. We know that they go to the biggest experts out there, that they want, you know, the people doing the research on whether it's a product or whether it's a device or a technology, you know, understandably, they want people that are in that field. But again, I think that going out of their way to make sure that the chair of the guideline has no vested interest or conflict of interest is very helpful. And and I certainly learned through this guideline process why maybe that 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 absolutely should be the underlying uh, rule for the chair. Now, some of our guidelines from ACCHA have made the decision that they want nobody to have conflict of interest on their writing group. And, and certainly I'm I'm sure we can discuss the pros and cons of that, but if the con would be that you might lose those experts that are working with industry, partnering with industry in a way that we need to in medicine. I, I, I strongly believe that, you know, we have less NIH funding for research. And so sometimes it's just that we need the research dollars to come from some other places than the NIH. So, Partnering, I don't see as a bad thing, but I I think that there should be a a balance. And so what the ACC and AHA actually ask for is at a minimum, 51% of the writing group has to have no conflict of interest. And obviously less than that would have conflict of interest. But it's actually up to the chair to decide if they want 
absolutely everybody to be free of conflict of interest. We definitely looked at it and we always kept it heavily on the side of no conflict of interest. So about a third of our co-authors, for example, had conflict of interest, meaning that they had industry relationships, but the remainder did not. And we did that because we know sometimes things can change while you're writing. And what we always ask our entire writing group is that if they want to partner with somebody that they have not done before we started writing the guidelines, that they have to ask us. That's just a rule. And at every meeting, so every online meeting for guidelines, when we were meeting both in person and virtually, we would always start our meeting by reviewing everybody's conflict of interest. So just to make sure, even though we know that we had asked everybody to ask us things in advance. We know sometimes people forget. So we'd run through the list. We'd put them up on the screen. It says your name, your conflict of interest, or your lack thereof. And then we'd say, is this still correct for you? If it wasn't, we would change it right then and there. And so it's very transparent. I think this is really important because we talk a lot on my podcast. Obviously, it's called Wellness Fact versus Fiction. And so a lot of what we are debunking is a lot of the predatory, you know, pseudoscience side of the wellness world. And um, I know you would agree with me. We're we're both not going to sit here and say that industry, you know, is flawless and perfect. And of course, there ha- there's, of course, you know, physicians who do have conflict of interest. And obviously, it's not a, a black and white thing. But I do think it is incredibly important that you are clearing this up, because I think that this is the biggest issue that is weaponized against guideline-directed medical therapy is industry. It's it's that you're a pharma shill. This is weaponized against us by the alternative wellness space. And you know what? We actually call conflict of interest something else. We call it relationship with industry. So RWI is actually the term we use when within the guidelines. We want to know everybody's relationship with industry in advance. And what that does is when we are voting on a recommendation that we are going to put into our guidelines, if just, for example, you have a relationship with industry on, you know, just pretend with the CT scan, you cannot vote on CT scan. So we actually ask people that have that, we have the list in front of us and we always know. So when we do the voting, we actually tell them in advance, okay, you will not get to vote on these three things. You, you know, say we have, I don't know, 150 recommendations we have to vote on. We will take them away from you because of your conflict of interest. You will get to vote on the ones that we have allowed you to because your relationship with industry or lack thereof allows you to vote on them. So people don't understand just how strict we are. They don't get to just vote and then I have to go through and clean it up later. No, not at all. What it is, is what we give to you is only the things that we've decided. And you don't even get any say in it. You may say to me, well, my relationship really doesn't, you know, overlap. We're like, right. well, just, just for the, the exterior or visual sense of our community, it might be appear like a conflict of interest. So we're not going to let you vote. And you can't really appeal to me. Like, it's just, it just is what it is. Um, so I think people don't realize that side of it. It's not just that we have more than 51% of people with no relationship with industry, but it is even the voting, even once we have those people with relationship with industry on our writing group, they do not even have voting power. They can talk about it with us. We we can discuss, we can argue about what we're recommending. They can give us even their two cents. But when it comes down to the vote, they have absolutely no vote, actually. And so that keeps us cleaner. And that, I think, is a good thing. And I think it, it really is, it strengthens our guidelines for the things that, like you said, that other people will always say that somehow... Your, your conflict of interest, or you had some people there, they must have influenced this, they must be pushing for the, whether it's a pharmaceutical company, or whether it's a, you know, a technology company, that's why you said what you said, that's why the guidelines say what they say. And I know from like, you know, we always hear it from prevention standpoint, like statins, as if we're all statin shills, 
No, listen, that is one set of guidelines where nobody on their guidelines related to the cholesterol guidelines could have any conflict of interest. Amazing. That was a decision by the chairs. That that was their decision. We made a slightly different decision, as I mentioned, but um, for the reasons that I justified as well. So funny, the, the irony. I'm so happy we're doing this episode because it's so funny. I, I'm obviously someone that recommends lifestyle change, nutrition, and and all these things for prevention. And even though... Um, any relationship with industry is available for public consumption because the Sunshine Act and anyone listening to this can go look me up right now and see that I've taken zero dollars from industry. I still get uh, called a statin chill on social media because I recommend guideline directed medical therapy. And it's hilarious because statins are generic and no, there's no statin company paying anyone to shill statins, but it is really, it's a, it's a weaponizing point, even though you can look me up and see, I've never taken money from, from industry. And I agree with you that, that I think it's a really important point you made as well is that some of the top experts are people that obviously industry um, in certain areas that industry is partnering with, because that's how science advances in many ways, right? So industry has the funding. I mean, some of, we cannot deny, although we're not saying that industry has always 100% historically been perfect. I mean, I grew up, quote unquote, you know, in medicine in the Sunshine Act era. So I don't even know what it was like beforehand. For me, it's always been incredibly regulated. I know that every, even if you take a lunch from a pharmaceutical company, it's public information, you know, so we don't even accept lunches in my office. And so we accept nothing. And so I think that what's really interesting though, is that 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 pharma is in general i mean you think about it they have the some of the the most incredible advances we have are because of technology and pharmaceutical companies in cardiology and prevention and it's because of some of these really robust partnerships they have with you know top cardiologists so i think it's a balance it's a delicate balance as you mentioned because we also shouldn't demonize um and i know you don't either i don't demonize any cardiologist that partners with industry because they are advancing the science for us they're helping our patients advance the science um and i think that what's beautiful is that you explained how transparent the process is and and that so say if someone did partner with a certain technology that was going to be on your guidelines, that is an added, you know, bulletproof measure you have there to make sure that they're, even if they have a subconscious, um, you know, bias toward this specific technology, they can't even vote on that in your guidelines because of it. And so I think that's so important to make clear um, how rigorous your process is in keeping bias out of the guidelines. Yeah. I think also important to, to note that for anyone listening, you can go on to any um, ACC, AHA um, guideline and see the entire criteria for, for all these things. But just to review with um, Martha, that you also select experts for the writing committee as guideline chair. You select experts across a spectrum of backgrounds representing different geographic regions, sex, race, ethnicities, intellectual perspectives, biases and clinical practice settings. So how do you go about choosing who's going to be on the committee? Yeah, this this is a very interesting process. Again, that I didn't entirely know until I got to be chairing the guidelines where literally all of this was run by me, even in advance of me choosing my co-chairs and, and, um, you know, and my members was, you know, the, within the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, both of those societies value diversity. So they, you know, that was one of the criteria they made very clear to me that, you know, who's writing it just from a, from literally every aspect, they wanted diversity and they wanted us to look at things, whether it's looking at gender, whether it's looking at it by geography of where people are, whether it was looking at people's different practice settings, you know, uh, whether it's by race, whether it's by ethnicity, that we really consider that. Additionally, a lot of people might be surprised by this, but we actually were asked to have a patient be part of our guidelines. Amazing. Yeah, the patient's voice, I think, is exceptionally important. Phenomenal. We're in an era where we shouldn't just be talking about the patient being patient focused the only way we can be patient focused is to include a patient's voice and so we actually had a patient included in our guidelines and that's pretty much the standard now for wow for our guidelines 
So the additionally for chest pain guidelines might be a little different than every other guideline and every guideline has its own nuances. We wanted to make sure that we were representing all aspects within cardiology, but also in medicine that deal with chest pain. So that what that meant for us was including the emergency room folks. It meant including imaging specialists. So whether that's radiology or cardiology, we wanted to keep those people included, but that meant also including the societies that have strong focus also on the evaluation of chest pain. So who was that? The American Society of Echocardiography, the American Society of of Nuclear Cardiology, the Society for Cardiac MR, the Society for uh, CCT, uh, Cardiac CT was included. Am I forgetting anybody? Well, the Society for Emergency Physicians was also part of this. So we wanted to make sure that everyone's voice was heard. So the way that that works is you invite the societies to be part of this guideline. They either agree or disagree, but those who agree will send, we we basically say, we want you to choose a member to be part of this. So give us a couple of names of people that you think would be valuable to us. People that either know the, you know, know the literature particularly well or doing research in that area particularly. They can give us names. Again, what we do is we also want to know their RWI. We want to know the their relationship with industry. And then we decide based on having a good balance, we we look at the names they gave. And sometimes you'll choose somebody you might know they have the expertise and you're like, yes, I absolutely want that person. But look at how much conflict of interest they have. Well, if I take that person, maybe I can't take the next person to have too much uh, relationship with industry. And so it is that balance, because like I told you, we, we've tried strongly to only have a third of people to have relationship with industry. So we were often looking at the names, but I didn't choose those names. The societies chose those names. Right. The other portion was the expertise of the people that we also wanted, that we knew were doing work, but maybe weren't nominated by the society. So that, that was kind of how we balanced out our writing group. We were pretty... Um, you know, a long number of members, I don't know, uh, 20 plus people on our writing group. And, you know, you there's a fine balance between having too little people where you don't have the expertise, but too many people where, you know, they just can't hurt all the, hurt all the people and keep them in line. So that, you know, as much as you'd love to have lots of people, and I know a lot of people would love to be on guidelines, you got to keep, there's a fine balance in those numbers. And I love also that you have represented, I know that this is consistent across um, all cardiology guidelines. You have nurse representation there. So you have RNs, you have PharmDs, so pharmacists, you have PhDs, so scientists. So you have, um, and then you, you included a patient. I know for the nutrition and primary prevention guidelines, they have um, registered dietitians. Um, and so I love to see that it's multi-specialty as well. Exactly. Yeah. You always have to make sure, like, again, every guideline will have its own nuances of who they need at the table. Right. And that that will always be the way that things are, you know, a little slightly different for one guideline to the next. But it is up to the chair and the co-chairs to decide, do we have everyone we need at the table? And if we don't, we'll t- I'll tell you the truth about our guidelines. We we met for the first time in person. We thought we had everyone, although when I was flying to our first meeting, I actually realized that one society was not included and I didn't quite understand why. And so when we got there, we we actually talked amongst ourselves and we were like, you know, we really need to invite this other society. And they really usually don't make exceptions, but this time when they realized that, yes, this, this particular imaging society was overlooked, they... Um, said, yes, we'll have to. So even though they missed the first meeting, the next meeting they were allowed, because in in truth, everyone's supposed to be at every meeting. Lots of checks and balances in place to make sure that this is an unbiased, incredibly evidence-based, top expert represented group to create our clinical guidelines. Okay. So amazing. So now how long 
do guidelines usually take to generate? And for your experience, when did you guys start the chess game guidelines? Just so everyone can understand how rigorous and grueling this process is. It's not something you're doing overnight. So when did you guys, uh, and by the way, so everyone knows they are not paid to do these guidelines. This is volunteer. This is a volunteer academic mission for the top uh, cardiologists and, and scientists and you know people in the world to do these guidelines. And so um, when did you guys start it and about how long did it take? Yeah. So every guideline, again, will be unique and different depending on how much data they have to synthesize and create to create a guideline. So if you're lucky and you don't have much research on the set of guidelines that they want you to do, um, I suppose you could write the guidelines very quickly because you wouldn't have much, much literature search to really do. Unfortunately, that was not the case for our <laughs> guidelines. There's obviously tons of literature regarding the evaluation of patients with chest pain. It was also the first time ever that these guidelines had ever been written. We've never had a chest pain guideline. In fact, it's the first symptom-based guideline. And ours, I would say, was definitely starting from scratch is different than updating a guideline for sure. But additionally for us, chest pain is such a broad subject. I mean, everybody sees chest pain, whether you, whether it's cardiac or not. So it, it was really a challenge to figure out how are we going to address the most important questions for chest pain, because you could spend all day talking about esophageal spasm too, right? Like or other causes of chest pain. So it, it, again, but for us, our literature was broad. There was a lot of vested interest in what happened with these chest pain guidelines, I think, from societies and from people that do the imaging modalities in, in the United States and beyond. They were very interested in what we were writing. We might have won for the longest. Well, I don't think we were the longest, but we were definitely one of the longer guidelines in terms of the amount of time it took us to achieve consensus. So that can tell you that there was, you know, arguments both within our writing group, but also by the people that review our guidelines in terms of criticisms they had for our guidelines. And, and I'm sure we'll get into that and how, how you, you're, how they're peer reviewed, but ours took about four years from start to wow. finish in terms of these guidelines. And it was a long process. And you're absolutely right. These are not, none of my volunteers, including me, are paid for this. And I think, you know, as my friend, um, you, you, you might have externally experienced both my angst, the amount of work. I, you know, we were writing nonstop. I'm correcting things that other people have given me. It's a lot of work, especially for the chairs and co-chairs, but also for my entire writing group. I, I, I'm just impressed that people give up this much of themselves for something that you're absolutely right. Like there's no money. There might be a little prestige, right? It helps, of course, being on our CVs. But listen, there's you could have written thousands of other papers in the time that we wrote these guidelines and, and achieved prestige in, in other ways. So it, it is a labor of love. It is something that you feel like, okay, listen, I see what's going on in my community, in society, in our cardiology community as a whole, how can I make it better? How can I provide the evidence so that we do things right, that we use the newer technologies or our ways of evaluating patients or even our biomarkers in a way that is the right way? How do we spend medical resources, our you know, our healthcare dollars effectively in evaluating patients? When are we wasting money? And when are we missing people? And how do we balance that? How do we put that into our guidelines? So all of those factors are things that I think my writing group felt so passionately about in, term, in terms of participating, because I will say every one of them was there all the time. They were there, they were invested. And even when we were kind of frustrated at times, we're like, we just kept our team focused and said, look, we're going to do this. We can answer these questions. We can make it right. We want to make this document for, for our community to take better care of patients. And I think that's what it really came down to. That is really, really well said and so important because I think that there is 
a lot of confusion over, you know, what makes these guidelines and what goes into them and how much influence there is outside of it. And to hear how thoughtful and how seriously you obviously all take it and how this is an unpaid volunteer labor of love, as you said, I think is so important. And it's ultimately for the best patient care. There's a few quotes that I love that talk about guidelines that are actually um, on ACC. And I think they're really important. I think it's a good time to mention them now. One is from Hefner in 1998, not Hugh Hefner. is a, a scientist, Hefner. Um, <laughs> the, the safeguards of a group process should be initiated so as to ensure that the consensus achieved by the guideline development experts would reflect the consensus of the larger group of experts on the topic around the world. And I think that that is very represented. And he also says, like the collection and quantity analysis of scientific data from an experimental study, collection and grading of the evidence for a guideline development allow conclusions, i.e. guideline recommendations, to be developed in a manner that is supportable by the data, the scientific evidence in the literature. So starting with that, so for your evidence review, so how what is the methodology? How do you start systematically evaluating all the data? So you've selected your guideline committee. What's next? What we do when we look at all the data and what we assigned, everybody's assigned to sections. And what they know is there's two things we weigh our evidence on. So there's, we're going to give a class of recommendation is the first part. And that's the strength. Like, so how many studies have we had? Have we had trials that have have looked at the comparative effectiveness of treatment A versus treatment B? Have we had randomized controlled trials? You know, all of that. But that ultimately, our class of recommendation is the strength of the recommendation. Then there's your level of evidence. And that the levels are the letters that follow. So the classes are class one or class 2A or 2B or class threes, which either are there's no benefit or there's harm. That's how we decide what the number is beside them. Then there's the level of evidence. And the level of evidence is the quality of the evidence. So where did the evidence come from? So level A means that there's high quality of evidence with more than one randomized control trial. Level B is where there's randomized control trials, but it's kind of moderately well done or moderate quality um, and then there's level B non-randomized. So when they, you know, you have some good studies, maybe they're observational, maybe they're registries, but they weren't randomized trials. Level C is where we we have some evidence. Maybe it's a meta-analysis, maybe it's a mechanistic study, maybe it's a non-randomized study or a registry study that has some limitations. We might call that a level C with limited data, so that people know where we took this data from? Where did we find these, you know, the results? You get a class for every guideline and you get a level of evidence. So you you can see that you can have a class one recommendation with a level A, meaning we think this, you know, it's it's rec- this is recommended in all patients and we have really good randomized controlled trials, but you could have a class one with, you know, limited data. And then you you take that into, you know, you that's how you weigh whether you're going to do that on everybody or whether you really think that that's important enough for you to practice in that way. I think that's so important too, because um, like, as you mentioned, that with the systematic way in that you grade the evidence, giving it a class, giving it a level of evidence, and then it's provided on the guidelines. So that way, any physician or nurse practitioner or physician assistant who is managing a patient that wants to see what the guideline recommendation is for this clinical scenario can see, okay, well, this is the guideline recommendation and here's the level of evidence that supports it. So that that really does play into an important part in clinical recommendations because obviously our patients are not a monolith and obviously a part of practicing medicine is the actual art of practicing medicine. So, you know, the three pillars of evidence-based medicine, one being, of course, the evidence, but the most important is, you know, the patient sitting in front of you and their values and their goals and all those other things. Um, And so I think that the grading and the level of evidence on guidelines is wonderful because it can be applied to practice. You know, if you have something that's a 
um, a class 1A recommendation that is, you know, really robust, strong recommendation, you may try to emphasize that importance to a patient differently than if something's a, like, you know, a lower level of evidence with a lower class and strength of evidence. When people look at guidelines, you think it's not even a secret either, because we are asked for all of that to make it into a summary table. I know people usually just read the guidelines and don't go to all the things we've written on the, but just so that they know if we use certain trials or certain registries or, you know, or observational data, we have to summarize that in tables and to say that this was a randomized control trial. Here was their findings. Here's the population they included that is like most of the patients we see or not like most of the patients we so see. So important. And so people can go and look at those tables because you have to summarize them even for to get to the review process, but they do publish those with our, our paper or with our guidelines so that people know where did this evidence come from. Does the trial evidence and recommendation apply to the patient that's directly in front of them? Exactly. And the wording of those guidelines should represent who does this apply to. And otherwise you do get criticism. When you are reviewing all of the data and the methodology and systematically going through all of it, you mentioned that you assign, so there's different topics um, that you assign to each other. And then how does it work with the voting process? So the person who is assigned presents it to the entire writing group, regardless of their level of expertise, because they should be able to convince us by what they've written where the recommendations came from, then we as a group externally critique it. We're like, yeah, but that trial, you know, that it might have been a randomized control trial, but it wasn't asking the same question. Mm -hmm. They were just asking something else. It just happened to be a randomized control trial with a different endpoint than we're telling people about. And so people will criticize say, well, you know, I don't agree with that, or I think that level of evidence isn't the right level of evidence. And we argue about it and debate about it. And then usually there's another writing. That means that person takes all that criticism back to their desk. They will revise what they've written and present it based on the critique we've provided. Then we send the whole document. When we're actually finally done, we send the whole document to the entire writing group so they can see it in full. When everybody on the writing group is kind of like, yes, I'm happy with the way things are, then when before we go to peer review, we send to our entire writing group every recommendation we've made just to vote on. Once everybody's voted, we, you know, we look. If we have consensus, it's an easy thing. If we don't have consensus, then we, we either have to bring it back to the entire writing group and decide what do we want to do? Do we want to remove it all together if we all disagree with it? Or do we want to revise it so that people are happier or more comfortable with what we're about to send out? But even after that, you know, and this is why it's such a long process, is once we've decided that this is where we all fall, it gets sent to peer review. And peer review is not a, not for the faint hearted, I guess is what I would say, because for guidelines, every society gets to also give reviewers, as does the American College of Cardiology, as does the American Heart Association, which will have a big number peer reviewing already. They choose them. We have nothing to say about who is peer review choices from either society or from the uh, societies that we've invited as well. So we have nothing to do with that. There must have been, I don't know, more than more than 50 people in the first wow. round and closer to 100 by the time. Wow. Every comment has to be addressed. Wow. Even if you disagree with it, then you have to justify why you disagree with it. I mean, we literally had thousands of uh, things we had to address of points because they can, whether it's a typo, whether it's a spelling error, whether it's a, um, you know, they didn't like your graph, they didn't like your figure, fine, you, those you can address. But if it's, if it's content in there, we had more than a thousand of them that wow. we had to respond to. And that was 
like a project unto itself, but it also made, it's the value of peer review because they give you good feedback that makes the guidelines really good. And I think this is such an important point because whenever we mention guideline-directed management, guideline-directed medical therapy, this is what we're discussing. We're talking about the process that goes into our guideline directed medical therapy and recommendations. And the one that we always use as an example is statins, for example, for someone that has a guideline indication and need for statin. And I think that it's so important that you just mentioned the peer review process for guidelines that is so much more extensive, like as you just said, than regular typical peer review. This is far more extensive because one of the biggest things we are battling on my podcast, as you know, and I know that you do it too on social media as well, is battling health misinformation. And there's a large alternative health influencers out there. This actually even includes some people with MDs after their name who are anti-guideline, who are making recommendations outside of the guideline. They make their followers very resistant to trusting the systematic process of guideline development. And they make recommendations that are not um, in guidelines. And what's what's interesting to me is that uh, for anyone listening, I hope listening to this podcast episode really restores your faith in when we say guideline-directed management or medical therapy because of the fact that if you have an influencer or an MD or anyone, because it doesn't matter what your degree is, there's plenty of people hawking and recommending things that are not evidence-based online. They could cite one single study that supports their idea, right? When we're talking about guideline recommendations, we're talking about the top experts in the world on a topic meeting and deliberating and arguing over the and systematically grading the levels of evidence for recommendation. And then it's not even just up to them. It's taking that and submitting it to hundreds of other experts who are going to critique it and who are going to put in their two cents as to the strength of the evidence and the systematic way in which the guidelines are approved. So whenever I say that if you have one influencer, and this happens in the nutrition space all the time, where people try to say, oh, LDL cholesterol isn't bad for you. You know, some people on really high fat, either keto or carnivore diets try to falsely say, um, LDL cholesterol isn't bad for you. It doesn't cause cardiovascular disease, which we know um, high LDL cholesterol and APOB unequivocally causes atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And I'm going to do a whole podcast on cholesterol soon. But when you have one influencer saying this, I always clap back with the fact that how could this one influencer, even if they have an MD after their name, how could they know more than this process that we just described? What are your thoughts about the wellness space and for our listeners here, because, you know, all of my listeners and all of us in general, because I feel the same way I have been, I always say on my podcast, I've been misinformed in areas outside of my specialty. I've had false beliefs before and not until I learned truly how to understand evaluating scientific evidence did I really understand why this is so important. But, um, you know, all of our listeners, everyone's just looking for solutions, right? They're looking for help. They're looking for wellness. It's not their fault. So how can you reassure them? And what are your thoughts about the way that when you have these influencers recommending things outside of the guidelines, even if they're a doctor, what are your thoughts? I get that even us as physicians, and, you know, I'm guilty of it too. I, you know, I know what's evidence-based maybe, and I'll still do something personally for me that is not evidence-based. And I, I, I will say that, I, mean, I know that the data doesn't support this, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's fine. But when you do it amongst your family, your friends, that's one thing. But when you are posting it on social media, people are assuming that this is what the doctor is recommending and they're doing it to themselves. And that's what really frustrates me about the social media community and why I'm so grateful for you, Danielle. I feel like people don't recognize just how important you are to our medical community and particularly to our cardiology community because you have a voice and you have a platform and you've used that platform to conquer misinformation. Because often in our clinical settings, I am, I am arguing or not arguing because with my patients, I'm not arguing, but I'm trying to convince them that what they saw online is actually not the evidence. And I, I think that that is so hard because patients can look up anything these days. And that's a good thing. I love my empowered patients, but what I want them to find online is people that are giving them 
evidence-based facts, things that will help them make decisions, but use the evidence. We we need to make sure we do our, you know, the oath that we all took, which is do no harm. And I'm glad that medical societies are now stepping in and saying that, you know, there will be repercussions of people putting out medical misinformation. Our patients are just looking for answers. Looking and for I don't answers. blame them ever. Me neither. They are Me not neither. able to tease out whether you are an evidence-based doctor or you totally. are not. They are just looking, okay, this is somebody who sounds smart. They, you know, they've got some data they put like this study showed. How am I as a patient supposed to weigh that whether there's other evidence that goes against what right. they and, and the strength and the level of evidence totally agree. And, and that's why we always say anecdotes are just anecdotes and that's it, you know, and the guidelines synthesize all of the levels of evidence because you can literally find a study to support anything, any bias, anything. I also implore any physicians listening to um, I've gotten frustrated with seeing physicians even making uh, health recommendations that one may say or think are benign, like whether it's about nutrition or things like that, that are completely not evidence-based because like, as you mentioned, first of all, no nutrition recommendations are um, necessarily benign. They can all, many of them can be harmful, but um, when, like you said, you know, there is some unfortunate, you know, authority bias, the MD after their name or the DO or any physician um, or person of authority that makes it sound like it's pretty confusing for for our patients. And so I even implore physicians listening, you know, even when I want to share an interesting patient anecdote, right? So even if I want to share, um, I think there's a few different things on social media that can be challenging and difficult to navigate. One that I think that we need to all do a better job of, um, especially the ones who are promoting misinformation, is when you're sharing a patient anecdote, for me, I think twice. If it's if the anecdote is not supported by expert consensus, not saying that I won't share it, but say, let's talk about all, all the totality of evidence, for example. This is just be our example. Saturated fat um, increases LDL uh, cholesterol and um, atherogenic lipoproteins, right? So um, if I have a patient who switches from eating a high saturated fat, you know, animal-based diet, and then switches to a plant-based diet, and then I have all these amazing biomarkers showing an incredible improvement in their cholesterol, I'll share that anecdote on Twitter. Um, sometimes my patients ask me to share it because they're so excited. And the reason why I share it um, effortlessly is because it's supported by the totality of evidence. Um, when you're sharing something like the physicians who unfortunately share a lot of anecdotes um, with keto or carnivore, or even some, well, it's every diatribe, even the low-fat plant-based group sometimes shares anecdotes that aren't accurate, that are not supported by the totality of evidence. I'm not saying that you can't share a case, but I think it would be important to frame it and say, this is an interesting case that goes against the totality of evidence. Maybe someone should study this in a systematic way to evaluate if this hypothesis of the anecdote, because anecdotes are hypothesis generating, is valuable. But don't just phrase it in, well, here's this one scenario that happened with my one patient, so you should do this too. You know what I mean? Yep. I think that's that's the best point because that's what we do see on social media. And it isn't prefaced, like you said, by this is not what we expected based on the evidence. And you have a lot of work to do to unravel that, to say to your patient, here's why you should believe what I'm telling you versus what you saw online is online. They saw somebody get a thousand likes or, you know, whatever it is. And they're like, yeah. And everyone's writing. I did this too. And yeah, I believe this. And then they go down that pathway and they're like, and then suddenly you're telling me this is all wrong. You know, like you, you look like the outlier rather than the rational person. And I will say that one thing that the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association are doing very well now is before we used to write guidelines just for doctors, but we've also changed that to make our guidelines, make it also targeting towards patients so that they can understand what our guidelines are as well and putting it in layperson terms. So just know that if you're listening to this podcast as a patient, the more recent guidelines that have been written also have a patient part of this. And we release it to the press in this way. We put it on the American Heart Association website in this way. We make our graphics more friendly. And in fact, if you look at our chest pain guidelines as an example, we made used our acronym chest pains 
to give the top messages. And we wrote those messages for for the healthcare community, but also for patients so that they would also understand them. We need to improve the health literacy of the greater population. And I think that's how we empower people. And that's why social media can be really good because there's people informing everyone what is out there, what was the evidence based on. But it is the misinformation that goes against everything that we're trying to do. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, even my experience, so as uh, Martha mentioned, she's uh, the soon-to-be president of the American Society of Preventive Cardiology. She is the queen of all things prevention. And I was so honored to be the uh, co-chair of our um, American Society of Preventive Cardiology clinical practice team on nutrition for prevention of cardiovascular disease. And, um, and we'll link that too in the show notes. Um, but even when we wrote our clinical practice statement, you know, because uh, people could obviously listen to this and say, oh, well, Danielle, you're vegan, you're going to be biased. But even, listen, everyone has their own personal bias. It's just human. Um, I work really, 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 really hard to be um, not unbiased. And, and that's really something I've worked on for years. And I think I do a pretty good job of it. But even if I were having some subconscious bias, you know, I think of everyone on our paper to, that came to come up with these statements. And I think it's so important that there's so many checks and balances in place to make sure that the science is represented and not our opinions. Exactly. And when we wrote that, as you chaired that, I was the co-chair, my dear. She <laughs> read that paper, but it was probably your first experience seeing first. What, peer review, what peer review really did. You know, when they didn't like how we stated something, they'd say it. You, everyone's freely giving you their, their two cents. And so they, they also critiqued it and told us when we were maybe inappropriately biased. And that, that's actually a good thing. I mean, we it's all- It's a good thing. It's an amazing all, thing. But, but like you said, it, it's an art to take care of a patient as much of a, as it is a science. And so the art is figuring out both the patient's values, but also does the patient fit into exactly what we're, the studies have shown. So that's why it's important for us as physicians to keep on top of the literature, be reading things and knowing when certain data is limited, but that doesn't take away still from the misinformation out there. And that's what I think guidelines really do is provide some guardrails, provide the evidence. Absolutely. And um, uh, this this last quote I want to read from the Institute of Medicine 2001, I think this is so important. It's one of my favorites. It's about how guidelines help to standardize care. And as you mentioned, you know, the pillars of evidence-based medicine are, of course, the evidence, but also the patient sitting in front of you and their values and, and their particular scenario. And um, it all has to be applied and synthesized together. But the reason why guidelines are so helpful, right, is because, here's this quote from the Institute of Medicine 2001, patients should receive care based on the best available scientific knowledge. Care should not vary illogically from clinician to clinician or from place to place. And I think this is so important because patients deserve the best evidence, the best available evidence to date um, that is standardized. You shouldn't be seeing, and this happens so frequently that patients will see one physician who makes a recommendation, oh, you should go on keto. Another physician says you should go on plant-based. Another physician says you should take a statin. Another physician says, oh no, statins are bad for you. This is why guidelines are so important to standardize because our patients deserve the best evidence available to date. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that it puts the patient in a difficult position if they yes. hear contradicting information. And the patients, let's remember, they didn't all go to medical school. Correct. And so how are they to do, how are they to weigh this? They should be able to trust their physicians, but the um, ease of access, the ease of of people's opinions, if you will, is what's to some degree taking away a little bit when it when it, we're putting out things that are completely wrong. And I think that is our challenge for our, you know, our era of empowering our patients where the patients are the center of our care, which is what it should be. But then how do we deal with all the other noise that is out there distracting from taking the best care of our patients. And that's why this episode to me was so important was because I always say, um, and I know it can be complicated, 
or patients listening to this who are saying like, I don't know how to, um, you know, great evidence. And I totally understand there's plenty for anyone listening. There's plenty of physicians who do not know how to grade or critically appraise scientific research as well. And that is why, and even Jen Gunter said in her episode, every, actually every physician I spoke to in every episode has reiterated this. That's why a foolproof thing, if you think something's questionable that's going on with your physician, a foolproof thing to go to is the society guidelines. Um, and a lot of them are coming forward with more, as you mentioned, patient-facing recommendations. You know, Jen Gunter mentioned for menopause, there's lots of pseudoscience and misinformation, but if you go to the menopause society, they have tons of guidelines and um, same way that cardiology does, you know, they synthesize the evidence and um, put all the recommendations out there. And guidelines are a good full, foolproof way. And not saying that you have to go read the guidelines for everything. That's a lot of work. That's not your job. But I just want to give everyone listening a tool to empower them if they feel like they don't understand why Dr. X, Y, or Z is making this recommendation is go to the society guidelines for what this recommendation is and take a look at them. So what's your advice right now for the listener who is feeling like, you know, a bit confused on social media and getting misinformation? What's your best bet for them to kind of navigate this world now? Well, I think one thing is, is to find reliable sources. I know that's a challenge because there's so many voices out there, but look at people who, who are using guideline recommendations. What, what, they're, what are they putting out? Where are they getting their information from? Because those of us who, whether we tweet or are on Instagram, we usually say where we're getting the information right. from. Like, so we're all excited. Usually in my world, I'm excited when new guidelines come out. I want to read them. I want to know what they're saying. And if there's things I'm doing wrong in my practice, I want to change them based on what I'm learning. And you can see that on social media when people are like posting, you know, my society made these recommendations and, and, you know, that means that person is a follower of guidelines. So find people, the voices that are really yes. following that and I think that's probably the most important thing. If yes. you're seeing things on social media where one person saying one thing and another person saying another, you know, the first question is to ask: Is that just a, a point that we haven't answered yet? And the, so people have differing opinions because we're still doing research on that. But I, again, I find that that's hard for the patient in and of themselves to be able to know what which where we are in that. So bring it up with your, your own trusted physician and yes. ask them, why are they debating about this? Should I be taking this medication or should I be taking this supplement? You know, is there, is there real science behind yes. that? And hopefully the person that you have a good relationship with has the answers or can guide you to the answers or look it up. One of the best things I think when you have a physician is sometimes they don't know. And when they admit that to you, that, yes. you know, I don't know, but I'm going to look it up for you and get back to you. And I've done that for patients when they ask me questions on me topics that are not mine. Like when they ask about a supplement, we, meaning me and my patient, go to the NIH site on supplements. We look up the supplement that often I don't know uh, because it'll, you know, be something they found in the store. And usually my answer is probably this supplement isn't good for you, but, or isn't beneficial, but let's look up and make sure it's not going to harm you. And we'll look it up on the NIH site that has an entire thing for supplements. Mm -hmm. And we go through it together and we say, okay, well, here's what they know. Here's why that person is saying that potentially this is good for you or for this particular issue, but see what the NIH is asking more research to be done. And I will tell you for, I mean, I know this isn't a topic on supplements, but the NIH is trying to get more research on supplements because we know patients are interested in this and are using them. And we first want to make sure whatever they're putting into their bodies is safe that it won't harm them, but also wanting to know, is there something about what's, what's being pushed about this supplement? Is it good for you or not? And, you know, I, I well, I'll never poo poo anything anyone's taking until I look up the science. And I think that's also why guidelines for any physician who's listening, who's like, Oh, I don't have the time to, you know, look at X, Y, Z. I think that is why guidelines are such an important part of the process because guess what? If there's enough evidence for supplement X, Y, or Z to have a robust health benefit for your patient for 
whether it's cardiovascular disease or whether whatever it is, it will end up in a guideline. You know, so that is the important thing. The, the way you just described the way um, everything, all the evidence is systematically reviewed. I mean, think about how many studies we have on vitamin D for uh, for heart disease. You know, it's been studied out the wazoo. And, you know, we don't have a recommendation for, for supplements for cardiovascular disease prevention. And actually, in our clinical practice statement, we have a great section on su- supplements where we cover that data. If anyone wants to read it, we'll link to it in the show notes. But thank you so much, Dr. Galati, for this incredibly informative episode. This is something I've been looking forward to doing and talking about for so long because this is like truly, this is the heart of my podcast is based on the foundation of how we synthesize evidence and how recommendations come into play. And to have someone who firsthand was the chair of a guideline committee to explain the process has been so valuable for me and for everyone listening. So thank you. And let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Oh, well, um, I, I'm on Twitter more than anything else at doc and it's at Dr. Martha Galati, which is the same handle I use on Instagram, although I'll never be like Danielle on Instagram because <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing there. Um, so I, and thank you, Danielle, for allowing me to join your podcast today for such an important topic. And Dr. Gulati is being very humble. Her Twitter is amazing. She's got a massive Twitter following and she she shares so much valuable information on Twitter. And she also shares valuable information on Instagram. So go follow her on Instagram to pump up her Instagram too, because the evidence-based physicians out there like Dr. Gulati, we just, we need more of them in this space. So thank you so much, Martha. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunked next and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction and be sure to tune in next week.